loneliness is that subjective experience of not being as connected to other people as you want to be. So it's different. You could be lonely in a marriage, right? You could be lonely with 10,000 Facebook friends. Welcome to Inside Medicine, a podcast produced by Private Medical. I'm Dr. Jordan Schlain, founder and one of the many physicians in our practice. Today, two of my colleagues will join us, Dr. Natalie Walsh, our naturopathic doctor in Silicon Valley. Thanks, Jordan. Great to be here. And Dr. Hadi Halazon, our cardiologist and internist in New York. Hey, Jordan. Glad to be here. Our guest today is Dr. Robert Waldinger. He is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and directs the Harvard Study of Adult Development, one of the longest running studies of adult life ever done. His TED Talk, What Makes a Good Life, Lessons from the Longest Study on Happiness, is one of the most popular talks of all time. Hi, Bob. I'd like to start by hearing more about this 75-year-long study on happiness. And specifically, is this the longest study in the history of clinical trials? Well, it's actually now in its 84th year. And it is the longest longitudinal study of the same people, of the same lives that's ever been done. It's not a clinical trial. Uh, we're not any. We're not testing anything. We are simply observing people as they go through their lives. And can you tell us like, wh- who started the trial and, and what was the what were the early uh, thoughts about why they were doing it? It was actually started as two studies at Harvard, but the studies didn't even know about each other. One study was at Harvard's Student Health Service. It was the head of the health service who said we'd like to study young adults, teenagers moving into young adulthood and healthy development. So of course he chose all white males from Harvard. Um, He selected uh, 268 sophomores from the classes of 1939 to 1942. And in addition, unbeknownst to him, also in 1938, Over at the Harvard Law School, which is about a 10-minute walk away, Sheldon Gluck, a law professor, and his wife, Eleanor Gluck, a social worker, were interested in juvenile delinquency, but particularly in why some children from really disadvantaged homes managed to stay on good paths and not get into trouble. And so they selected two groups, a group of delinquent boys, uh, roughly middle school age, and a group of non-delinquent boys from the most troubled families in the city of Boston in 1938. Okay, so 75, 80 plus years later, what can you illuminate us as to what you found and and, and what, what you didn't expect to see and what you maybe did expect to see? Okay, first, what we did expect to see. What we find is that if you take care of your body, you stay healthier and you live longer. That it was dramatically clear that the people who did not abuse alcohol, did not smoke, got regular exercise, and had regular access to healthcare were the people who stayed healthy and lived the longest. Again, something your grandmother could have told you, but now we have good data on this. And of course, there are many studies as well that have similar data. So that's the the expected news. The unexpected news was that the quality of people's relationships 
their social lives, predicted how healthy they would remain as they grew older and how long they would live. So one of the findings that we found most impressive once we'd followed our men all the way to the time they were 80 was we looked back to when they were 50 and said, okay, what are the best predictors of who's going to be healthy and alive at age 80? And it wasn't their age 50 cholesterol levels. It wasn't their age 50 blood pressure. It was their age 50 satisfaction with their marital relationships. And we didn't believe that at first because we thought, yeah, how could that really be? But then many other research groups began to find the same thing. And now we know from a whole range of studies and different populations that this finding is quite robust. And I, I, do, I wanted to ask you, when you, you said quality of relationships, how is that defined for them? And, and does everyone have the same definition for what quality means? Yeah, really good question. And no, there's no single definition, but I can tell you a little. Probably the two big dimensions are the breadth of one's connections, like how many people you see in a given week. And then another dimension is the warmth of those connections. And one of the things we've been interested in is the sense of security you have in your connection. So, and that's the one that's more interesting to dig into. We asked people at a certain point, List all the people who you could call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared. And some of our participants couldn't list anybody. And some of our participants could list quite a number of people. And that reflects what we call security of attachment, meaning feeling like somebody in the world has your back. Somebody in the world would be there if you really needed help. What we found is that the people and the people who were lonelier in general um, lived shorter lives and they had earlier, not just physical decline, but cognitive decline. And loneliness, just to say, is that subjective experience of not being as connected to other people as you want to be. So it's different. You could be lonely in a marriage, right? You could be lonely with 10,000 Facebook friends. So loneliness is that subjective experience akin to secure attachment. And, and I guess another question is just, I think about work and there's this cult concept that people who retire, uh, they, they decline if, they, if they're super stimulated at work all the time and then they all of a sudden retire, they, they kind of quickly age and peter out. And I wonder if that's the lack of the, what I'll call the, the work wife or the work husband. Did you guys look at that part of the... Um, equation when you looked at relationships, because those of us who work every day um, are you know, often engaged in a lot of these little relationships. Absolutely. Absolutely. We did look at that. And what we found was that the people who were the happiest in retirement replaced their work relationships with other relationships outside. They, as we say, they replaced their workmates with other playmates. And that it wasn't just about marriage, it wasn't about work, wives or husbands, but, but all the connections. So, you know, as you were saying, Jordan, um, it's, it's all the little relationships. One of the things that research is also finding is that our casual relationships turn out to be really helpful to us and, and useful for our health. 
that if you think about it, you get little hits of positive feeling when you have a nice exchange with the person making your coffee at the coffee shop or with the postal delivery person. Um, and what they find is that what they're called, they're called sometimes weak ties, except I like better the word casual ties, um, that these actually matter. And so the people who have the hardest time don't get any of those benefits either. Well, one of my questions is now that we have sort of fewer casual interactions, not even related to the pandemic, but before that, you could pump your own gas and check out your own groceries and not see anybody at the mailbox and you wouldn't have to see anybody. I mean, and now we're moving a lot of our relationships into digital relationships. What, what are the effects of that? Natalie, if I knew the answer to that, I would win many <laughs> prizes. So we don't, you know, we don't know yet. There, we're trying to do good research on this, and well, I mean the collective we of researchers, because we know intuitively that some things are not replaceable, that there's communication of emotion, for example, that can't happen in the same way across a digital platform in the way that it can in person. Emotion is actually contagious. And what we find is that there's certain kind of contagion that can happen on, on a virtual call, but some of it doesn't happen. We don't know yet what gets filtered out and what's irreplaceable online. We do know that there are some ways that online connection can really help people, can help people feel less lonely. Um, one of the interesting things to your question is that they are finding that how we use the internet uh, makes a big difference in whether we are helped or hurt by that use. So, for example, passive internet use, where people are scrolling Instagram feeds and looking at other people's curated lives, that leads to more depression, more of a sense of missing out, a sense of low, a lower self-esteem, particularly under with teenagers. On the other hand, active internet use, like reaching out and reconnecting with you, your elementary school friends who you haven't seen in decades, um, that can be really enlivening, even though it's on a virtual platform. So one of the important dimensions that we're trying to study is how people use their online interactions. I was with the guy yesterday, sorry, who is a CEO of biotech companies and, you know, he has three kids and he has coaches and he's had coaches all his life. And he said, one of the things he said was, if you're in the room, be in the room. And, um, he, and then he turned to me at the dinner and he looked me right in the eye and he said, this feels materially different talking to you now than it did when I was just sitting next to you not looking and directly facing you. And it's really like the paying attention to somebody, kind of like the person that gives off the vibe that, you know, maybe they're lonely or they're not, they don't want to engage. But, but you said, you know, so he, he, he said, when I was, when I heard that coaching technique, you know, when you're in a meeting, like put your phones down, like focus, but when you're with your kids, like absolutely focus on them and look them directly in the eyes. And, uh, bravo for having, for, that you said that because it's so important. And now I'm going to draw on my Zen background. One of my Zen teachers said something that I think is so helpful. He said, attention is the most basic form of love. 
the idea basically that our undivided attention is probably the most precious thing we have to give to someone else, as opposed to being scattered and distracted and trying to multitask, which we know neurologically is a myth. The problem we're all facing now is that undivided attention is harder and harder to give to anybody, including yourself, but certainly to others. Yeah. The other thing he said, which I just, he said, the path to happiness is getting over a desire to have a better past. Anyway, I know that you're doing this happiness study. I was wondering what you thought about, like, did you, did you find people stuck in their past and did that have an influence on, on their happiness in any way or longevity? Well, we certainly found people with serious regrets right? And some people were more consumed with regret. So we asked people at one point when they were in their 80s, as you look back on your life, what do you regret the most? We also asked what they're proudest of. And what they regretted the most, many of the men said, because they were of that more traditional generation, they said that they regretted spending so much time at work and not spending time with the people who mattered to them. And the women many of whom were homemakers in that generation, said that they wished they hadn't spent so much time worrying about what other people thought and that they had spent more time just doing what they wanted to do. No, so I thought the study was all men. So how, where did you get the women in there? Well, I got the women. So we had never said, when I, when I came on in 2002, I said to my predecessor, we got to study women. So we brought women in. We brought the wives in who were still living and were willing to join us. And so we started studying the wives. And then we have since started studying the children, all the baby boomer children of our original subjects. And 51% of them are female. So now, you know, we have quite a few women who are part of the study. Well, are there any differences? Uh, what are what are you finding? Is is happiness the same for for men and women or are you know there used to be this big gap between uh, men gaining life expectancy when they were married but not again for women. I think that's since sort of evened out, but are there real differences in the benefits of relationships for different different groups? Yeah, yeah. I mean the the latest figures that I saw were still that the benefit was greater for men, like longevity increases seven to 12 years for married men over unmarried. And for women, it's more like five to seven years. And we've always known that marriage was a better deal for men than for women. But I think the other thing we wonder about is whether that particular marriage benefit may be shaped by the fact that women are also generally better connected than men. So women have may have had less of a boost to get from marriage because they were also getting boosts in longevity from other connections that they were more likely to have than their husbands. I have a sort of a question slash comment about the relative nature of loneliness, um, especially in the pandemic. I f I, do extroverts have a harder time as they age as as their friends pass away and as as their 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 circle shrinks than introverts who who don't well i do know that introverts don't are not less healthy and they don't live shorter lives as far as we know there's no evidence for that and and 
what's important, I think, is not to, for me, not to convey the message that the healthiest thing is to be an extrovert. But introverts who might need only one or two people, that's not unhealthy, as long as they have those one or two people, right? So it's really finding a way for your social environment to suit your temperamental needs. I wonder what's replacing some of those social structures that you saw in the original study, right? People attending church, that marriage rates are down, birth rates are down. Are, are we building something new and better instead, or are we still kind of looking for our way, do you think? I think we're still looking for our way. A lot of what I've read is from the work of Robert Putnam, who's a sociologist at Harvard, at the Kennedy School. And you may know he did this book called Bowling Alone, which was famous for what he described as the decline in social capital, which is just what you're saying. Like people stop joining clubs and going to churches and volunteering in their communities. And it coincided in a big drop in social capital, coincided with the advent of television in the American home in the 1950s, people started just staying home. And then when he went back in the early 2000s and did the same survey, there'd been a huge drop again. Uh, in, and so, that, so that it had gotten much worse along these lines. People just stopped investing in other people. It also included a survey of how often families eat together. And that had gone down, down markedly. And one of the things I'm sure you know, but research shows is that families who eat together regularly have children who do better in school, who have better social skills, who get involved less in substance abuse and truancy. I mean, all these parameters on which children do better when families eat eat together regularly. Um, So all of this is to say I don't know where we're replacing it. And one of the worries is that some people are replacing it through these online communities that are hermetically sealed, where we, you know, fuel each other in our tribal anger at other tribes. And that's a big worry about what may be replacing our investment in each other in real time and in real communities. I know our, our listeners can't see you, but they can hear your positive energy. And, and especially, you know, you know, even though we're talking about digital world and, and, and connection, you exude such positive, to use a more, more modern term, vibe. Are you optimistic or not optimistic about the next generation, about, you know, the next 20, 30 years given everything you just talked about between digital transformation, uh, increase in loneliness, uh, you know, all these tribes, where are you on the optimistic or pessimistic spectrum? You know, each generation has claimed that the following generations are going to hell and that everything is terrible. And, and I know that that's what my generation is doing now. And so I'm skeptical of that. And I do certainly, you know, we see younger people, finding creative ways to solve some of these problems. And so I guess I guess I am hopeful in that that this does seem to be what we keep doing. We keep getting into trouble in various ways and then finding ways out of it. So so like right now, talking to you guys, I'm feeling kind of hopeful. So you said you you studied some Harvard men and some inner city 
kids? Did the Harvard people materially do much better than the inner city? I mean, what, what was when you unpack the, the data over time, how did the, the hard scrabble kids compare to the Harvard sophomores? Well, the Harvard men weren't happier on average, uh, but they were healthier and they lived longer. The Harvard men lived on average 10 years longer than the inner city men. And we think that had a lot to do with the health behaviors that we were just talking about. Um, that, and that the Harvard men got the messages sooner that were coming out really in the 70s, 80s, particularly about health behaviors that were so vital. Regular medical care, regular exercise, decent diet, not being overweight, not smoking, not abusing substances. But what's interesting is that 25 of our inner city men. So there were 200, I'm sorry, 456 inner city men, 25 of them graduated from college. The vast majority never even set foot in college, but 25 actually graduated. Those 25 lived just as long as the guys who'd gone to Harvard. I was going to bring it back to I'm sure if some of our members are listening to this, you know, many people are in, in our practice are, are very interested in longevity in the way it's uh, sold as take this medication, you know, uh, do this diet, all you name it. There's there's a there's hundred different things they can do. Uh, sh- sh- can we just say, you know, just focus on your marriage, and you'll probably be better off than taking any of these any of these things. Well, I think you know what we do know is that most of the supplements are worthless. I mean, it's a multi billion dollar industry, and and you know, as physicians, like you're you're. Patients are just taking so much stuff. Hard agree. And most of it is unproven, doesn't do anything. So if they could do the proven things like exercise every day, you know, like, boy, if they could trade their supplements for some of these health behaviors that have been proven, that would be fantastic. But is there is there hope for single people if you can't tell someone to focus on their marriage? <laughs> totally, totally. There. And and thank you, because I don't want to give the message that if you're single, you should just walk in front of a bus now. No, not at all. We're really talking about the quality of relationships. People, you don't have to be married at all. You don't have to be in an intimate partnership. Many people who are not in an intimate partnership have good, warm friendships. And that's what you need. Uh, we think that it is about the kind of stress-relieving, emotion-regulating properties of relationships, that that's the active ingredient in calming the body, in bringing the body back to equilibrium after it's challenged, after we're upset, for example. A friend can do that sometimes better than a spouse. So, so what we're really talking about is that, not about a marriage license. Happiness is not a place you get to and then you're there. Happiness is something that we move in and out of actually all day long, our moods shift, and that there are good times and bad times in life. And we actually ask people to graph their happiness. And you could see peaks and valleys for every single person in our study. And that's just important to, I think, to name because the fantasy is if we just do the right stuff, we'll get to a happy place and we'll stay there. And that's just not the reality of the lives that we studied. It's certainly not the reality of my life either. A lot of the people that I've listened to who have, to me, from an outward point of view, achieved a state of fulfillment and happiness, they meditate. Do you meditate? I'm, I'm a Zen teacher, actually. I 
I lead a Zen group and I do, yeah, I've been meditating for years. And, and, and I was actually listening to a, another podcast last night on, on this. I can't remember from who, but it was that um, mindfulness is the byproduct of meditation. Do you, do you meditate to get to mindfulness or is meditation in and of itself something that, that um, gives you peace? So there's a, there's a famous saying in Zen that goes, there is nothing to attain. So if we practice meditation with the idea that we're going to get something, we're usually in trouble. But that said, one of the side effects of meditation is a greater ability to, to come back to the present moment. Nobody is mindful all the time, as you know. I mean, our minds wander, and the corrective is to come back to the present. And so we need to keep doing some kind of practice that helps us do that. It doesn't have to be sitting on a cushion. It could be yoga. It could be painting. It could be taking a it, walk in nature. Yeah, it could be playing basketball. Almost um, anything can be done mindfully. Yeah. And my last question is, do you recommend people who seemingly are happy and healthy engage with uh, psychotherapists or therapists um, on a regular basis? Or, or is that something that one doesn't need? I do psychotherapy every day. I, that's my clinical specialty. And I have teachers who think everybody should have psychotherapy. I don't necessarily believe that. I think that if you're really content and doing fine, that, um, that it takes a lot of energy, of emotional energy. It takes time. It takes money, all that, right? So I think psychotherapy should be what you go to when you're feeling stuck in some way either because you're having symptoms or you're stuck in your life, that that's a place where it can really help. And then other, and so I have many people who kind of use me as their kind of primary care doc for their emotional lives and they come back. They'll do a bit of work with me. They'll go away and they'll come back. Um, and that's a model that I think makes more sense to me than the idea that most people should should have therapy. I do think there's a whole lot to be learned. And many of our psychiatry trainees are in therapy and are just so happy they, they're doing it. But I think by and large, it's the kind of thing that you want to do when you have a need. Well, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much, Bob. Yeah, this has been fun. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm happy to become a patient of yours anytime. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs>